الجزيرة بودكاست Global food costs have hit a record high. So what's driving that? Some blame war in Ukraine and drought. With soaring prices destabilizing many countries, what's the way out of the crisis? I'm Sehil Rahman, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So for more on this, I'm joined by our guests on this edition of Inside Story. In Santa Cristina, Italy, is Monica Tatova, economist for the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. In Helsinki is Sarah Schiffling, assistant professor in supply chain management and social responsibility at the Hanken School of Economics. And in Ottawa is Chebuke Udenegua, Professor and University Research Chair at the University of Ottawa. A warm welcome to all of my guests and thank you for joining us on this edition of Inside Story. Uh, Monica, can I just begin with you in Santa Cristina? I mean, the official body, the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, tells us that the food price index for the uh, five staples that are normally assessed has dropped for the 10th consecutive month. Yet we're also, as a global community, experiencing some of the highest food prices ever in, in most parts of the world. What's going on? It's a very confusing picture that's being told. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the question. Indeed, it is confusing, but it's not confusing once we analyze it a little bit further. The FAO Food Price Index looks at commodities, right? It looks at bulk commodities and the prices, the quotation at which those commodities are being traded between countries, between private sector, etc., etc. It also, since it's a composite index, it hides a lot of changes that is behind in this index. So, for example, in the last edition, we saw that the vegetable oil prices, dairy and sugar prices decline, while the cereal prices remain stable. But in cereals, we have wheat that uh, declined, and we also have rice, which increased. So, with this composite index, you get an overall answer that it had overall decline. The next point to make is that the consumers are not buying commodities in bulk. They are buying flour, they are buying bread, they are buying other goods, when the share of the commodity is relatively small or could be relatively small, depends what you buy. Yeah. But there is the cost of energy that, went, that goes to the, that goes to the, the cost of um, Producing flour. It. Mm. That is the cost of uh, cost of other inputs, labor, rental, that impacts the prices that the consumers are paying on the retail level. Okay, let me just bring in uh, Sarah Schiffling in Helsinki here, because uh, to add to what Monica said, vegetable oil prices have declined by two. 0.9%, dairy prices declined by 1.4%, meat costs decreased by 1%. This is according to the FAO, sugar costs decreased by 1.1%. How do these figures, Sarah, relate to sort of pre and post COVID pandemic levels? Can we, can, we, can we use that as a starting point? Well, I think we're in a very different marketplace now across the whole supply chain. So it's not just the basic inputs. But if you're talking food prices, it also includes the transport costs. It includes a lot of labor. And we are seeing labor shortages. We're seeing maybe a lack of mobility of labor that we previously had. So there's a lot of things that feed into what consumer prices are in the end. So 
there is a disconnect between the commodity prices, as Monica said, and what we're seeing in the supermarket, in the restaurant. So when we're talking about going out for a pizza at night or something, well, we are looking at a whole complex of things. It's not just the flour that goes into that, but we are having much more complexity there. And the market has shifted significantly, both the labor market, but also consumers are consuming in different ways now. We've seen a rise of online deliveries, a lot of our food being online delivered. That's an additional labor step there. So things are very complex. It's not just the commodities. There's a lot of other stuff that's going into that. Mm. And the world is a very different place than it was pre-2020. Indeed. We're going to unpick all of this slowly because there's so many, as you say, moving parts to this story. It is quite complicated for, for any of our viewers, most probably, who are, who are going to be trying to fathom uh, how to unpick it all. Uh, Chibuka, can I come to you in Ottawa? Because, I mean, there was recently the World Economic Forum that happened in Davos, uh, and food security was one of the, you might say, top issues to be discussed at all levels. Uh, and there were related debates to that food security uh, about social stability and climate change. You can't really talk about food security without talking about those subjects too. And um, what's the co impact of those sorts of conversations that are happening or have happened in Davos when it comes back to, you know... Uh, each sovereign country around the world, including Canada. I mean, they're having those debates there as well. Uh, indeed, I agree uh, with all the things happening. You know, there has been a very big impact on food security. Uh, and food security meaning uh, the ability of uh, individuals to have a sufficient access uh, to uh, nutritious food uh, at all times. Uh, and if you look at it, uh, that is not the reality. Uh, right now, there has been a very big uh, shift and uh, more and more people are, are, are classified as being hunger, uh, especially with the pandemic and the war in Russia, Ukraine. Um, and uh, if you put that into uh, context, you know, with respect to uh, climate effect, uh, you would see also a correlation, you know, with the increased in, in the climate change and drought uh, in many locations, uh, there is more and more uh, increased food insecurity. Mm. Uh, so uh, now, of course, there are uh, ways, different ways of mitigating this strategy, but then it's all uh, about you know, putting uh, things in the right context with respect to uh, um, you know, uh, input from uh, different stakeholders and input from, from different governments, uh, and also uh, the input of the right uh, innovations, you know, scientific innovations, uh, in, uh, in helping address some of these challenges. Well, let's talk about one of those uh, issues uh, a little bit more in depth. It's sustainable production, uh, Sarah, if I can come to you in Helsinki, because the impact uh, could well uh, be uh, pretty severe on climate change and job creation. It's the two things that are quite linked here when it comes to uh, trying to improve industry. I mean, such moves to improve sustainable production take time, and they cost money, but it's a continual debate, isn't it? I mean, what are the big sticking points uh, in that debate? It is a huge debate in terms of cost, obviously. Every country around the world is trying to save somewhere and we just don't have enough money to go around in most cases. But then there's also the question of are we solving this at a national level or are we solving this at an international level? There are 8 billion of us on this planet and we want to have food to go around and, well, I live in Finland, so it's not like we're going to start growing oranges here anytime soon, as much as we might want to localize our production. So we are looking at an international picture, quite a complex picture of how we distribute the food that we do have. We've seen that, for example, with the intervention of the UN in uh, Ukraine to try and get that grain out, to try and get it to those mm. critical areas around the Horn of Africa and others. So it is a global picture, but we're also seeing quite a bit of nationalism in that regard of, well, 
our country comes first. We need to support our own citizens first. So it is that delicate balance of, well, is it global? Are we going more national here? It is very, very political when we're talking about food supply chains as well as other supply chains. But food is kind of the most basic item that we all desperately need. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, nationalism because that was my next question. I want to come to uh, Monica uh, in Santa Cristina because your analysis would obviously include uh, national sovereignty of various countries and people within those countries and their national governments would want to reassure them that the food that they produce, even on their own land, is secure and they have nothing to worry about because if your borders are safe, then hopefully your growing capacity and your production capacity is safe until you start exporting more than you keep at home. Countries like Morocco have seen this, where they've actually sent so much abroad, they haven't got enough for themselves, especially, and this was quite evident during the pandemic. Um, how do you actually assess the way countries keep some of the produce for themselves without being accused of hoarding? Well, countries do have the right to, to protect their domestic markets, right? There is nothing that would prevent them from doing that. However, the, often the case with the trade restrictions, and we saw this happening uh, last year after the war in Ukraine started, that often these trade restrictions are introduced in a very abrupt manner, and the markets are not ready for that. So you will see that the countries, because they are worried they might not be enough supplies, they introduce, uh, introduce very sudden halts, very sudden measures that aren't stopping the exports. We saw this in Palmo earlier in uh, 2022. We saw it rise in some countries. So. When something like this happens, the prices immediately start increasing, and this is creating more problems for the importing countries. Chibuka, can I just bring you in here as well? I think you were nodding in agreement. Oh, yes, I, I agree. Um, but, you know, by respect to sovereignty, I, I believe that it's a balance. You know, so uh, food production should be in such a way that there would be enough you know, for people in the region or in the country, but also at the same time trying to contribute uh, in alleviating the, the issues globally. Um, and then one of these uh, cases is, you know, for instance, what happened, you know, with respect to wheat uh, shortage, uh, and then that impacted uh, literally the whole world uh, in terms of bread production and many other products coming from wheat. Uh, and that, that calls into, you know, question the over-reliance on certain types of food, uh, the big five, for instance, and the need for different uh, economies and different countries to diversify uh, the type of food that it produces. There are a lot of uh, different types of food that offer similar or even better mm. nutritional composition, for instance, or different uh, other aspects of, of, uh, of the food uh, system that can you know, help alleviate some of these issues. For instance, uh, you know, looking at the same level uh, as with, you know, we have uh, some other often crops or what we call neglected and underutilized crops uh, that are produced in different locations uh, that if cultivated, if produced in, in larger quantities, could actually help stabilize uh, the local food system and bring about some resilience so that when you have some uh, global disruptions, for instance, uh, then you wouldn't have a lot of shakeups in, in, in the market and that, that lead to increased food prices. So some of, these are some of the issues and some of the aspects of the food systems that, yeah. that we're yet to tap uh, into uh, fully. Okay. Uh, and I believe that uh, if addressed, it could 
uh, definitely help uh, reduce some of these conflict complications. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you still need to grow all of this food in some shape or form. Sarah, can I just come back to you? You talked about uh, the Ukraine grain shipments uh, and the agreement between Russia. Obviously, that was all hammered out last July in 2022. But um, before I go to Monica, because it is actually her agency that's saying that because the agreement is so shaky, Sarah, um, the, uh, the fact that fertiliser didn't get out on time, the fact grain didn't get out uh, on time will affect food production in 2023. I mean, how bad is it going to get before it gets better? Absolutely. I mean, in agriculture, you do have quite long lead times. It's not like you can suddenly decide to increase production for next week. So the issue with fertilizer and having enough fertilizer to actually have the right yield in all of those agricultural productions, that is a huge issue. And that's going to follow us around just because, well, it takes some time to actually grow your crops and you need a fertilizer at certain points in time and be able to actually do this. So this is a shadow that hangs mm. over the global food production. And then, of course, we're going into all the other issues with climate change as well, where we have seen huge droughts around the world really this year that are affecting agricultural production. Then, of course, the big floods elsewhere. You mentioned Pakistan at the beginning there. So we are in a very complex picture here that all feeds together to create this huge instability that is going to continue to follow us. And because there are so many parts to it, it's very difficult to predict, well, this is going to be the magic solution mm. because there isn't one. There is no one thing that can fix the situation on the supply side, but also on the consumer side. Mm. It is uh, Food is a very emotional issue. So it is something that, we react very strongly to, we saw that at the start of a pandemic with all of the panic buying of various comfort food items. Mm. But we're also seeing it now in market changes that when we do have export bans going in place, there is usually quite quick reaction to that from the markets of what are we going to do? What happens now? How is that going to influence our own market? So it is a very, very complex issue. So, Monica, can I come back to you then? Because of that whole uh, Ukraine-Russia issue that's ongoing, I mean, it's been the top story globally uh, for nearly a year now. Do we have a false impression that Ukraine and Russia are the only two countries that can produce the grain that the global market requires? Because there hasn't been so much of a shudder in Asia-Pacific, has there? So if I may go back for one question before I answer the question sure. about Ukraine and Russia. When I hear about production increases, I get a little, a little nervous because the production increases, it's good to increase the production when you can do it in a sustainable manner. The same applies for wheat as it applies for, for orphan crops. Orphan crops, uh, it's a great idea. They can provide uh, uh, livelihoods to, to countries, to, to people, to farmers, which otherwise would not be able to to be growing, say, mainstream crops. But the sustainability consideration, the environmental sustainability is really crucial. We have seen when the wheat was produced in the, in the desert many years ago, and even there, the, the, the production, eventually it was so costly that the, the country abandoned it. In terms of, uh, of Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine and Russia are, are two very important, very significant producers of uh, of cereals, uh, particularly uh, wheat, maize, and then uh, vegetable oils, rapeseed and sunflower seed. Uh, last year, we have not really seen that much of a decline. In uh, There was a decline in the exports from the Ukraine since they could not access the Black Sea ports between uh, the end of February and... Uh, Sorry, Monica, I'm going to jump in. We, 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 we know that part of the history. What I want to know mm -hmm. is why 
uh, we have this perhaps idea that we're relying just on Ukraine and on Russia, when in fact countries such as Indonesia, Malaysia, we China, are not then, then, no. but, yeah. but there is there is this idea, I think, going uh, in the public persona that if we don't get wheat, we're all going to starve. But that's not the case. That people in Asia Pacific are not panicking about it in the same way. And I'm getting nods from Helsinki and Ottawa on this. But I think we have to address how people in Indonesia are reacting and Malaysia and and the Philippines because they deal with a different type of cereal rice they do it with rice but when the when the exports of when the wheat prices increase this created problems also in indonesia for the price of instant noodles for example so it is all very connected but in fact you had this year you had a record crop in russia and russia keeps exporting to the global markets you had a record crop in australia and australia to the extent possible continues to export given the logistical constraints but maybe sana in helsinki can say more about the logistical constraints in australia they keep exporting, but nevertheless, the markets, the, 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 the production from Ukraine remains quite important. Mm. And if I may add, is that the last year, we, we have seen some decline in this production and export, but this year, we are going to see even a bigger decline because the farmers are lacking money to produce the next crop, to start the next crop. Mm. So, uh, for example, the area they planted with winter wheat is 40% less than it was last year. Okay, Chibi, and the okay. let me come to you in Ottawa, because are we then looking really at a more serious uh, topic of conversation when it comes to food diversification and, and lowering within that the global um, carbon footprint that scientists keep suggesting and governments keep promising? Yes, I agree. And in fact, that is actually one of the biggest, uh, most um, promising aspects of uh, mitigation of the current crisis, in my opinion, uh, because it is not okay that uh, disruption in one part of the world uh, would uh, disrupt the entire food system. So that would, that's what would say it's unsustainable. Um, so to increase our sustainability, uh, it is important that we embrace this concept of diversification and take it seriously because you know with diversification brings about stability you know because then people can produce their own food uh, and different cultures have different uh, types of cereal uh, and in fact this year is the un international year of millets which is also a cereal uh in, in a similar class as, as wheat you know and wheat climate resilience because it can grow in a drought condition there are many 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 other crops like that that can help bring about this stability if embraced as as the the, the other the next crop, um, so I, I believe that that diversification is quite important, and it would also help uh, control some of the climate issues. You know, because climate affects uh, you know uh, food and agriculture uh, significantly, and the other way around, the food and agriculture also affects climate. So embracing some of these other options, some of these other alternatives, can actually help stabilize the food system and bring about the, the much needed change. Uh, and that, that way, consumers can have more options. Uh, can have more. Um, in, in terms of uh, purchasing of food and also more stability you know, in terms of uh, the issues caused by the disruption. Uh, Sarah, can I bring you in here? I mean, where does the public-private partnership actually um, develop as such? You know, often we see uh, the government wanting to invest in, in new technologies to you might say, benefit the community at large. And if that is in food production, you need experts to come in because the, obviously funding is required. What's the balance when it comes to making sure that, you know, there is the issue of supply chain um, professionalism and at the same time social responsibility to the community. Absolutely. So a lot of interconnected issues here. And yes, there's many policy documents in place to say, OK, we're going to 
shorten our food supply chains, focus more on getting food from our country or within our region. But it also needs to follow through from industry, from producers, from manufacturers down the line, and in the end, also from the consumer. It is, yes, we want to switch to things that are easier to grow in drought conditions, for example, but that in the end is something that needs to happen on the consumer's plate as well. If people are unwilling to switch to something that is maybe not your traditional cereal, but is the one that we can continue growing and that we can continue growing at scale, that in the end doesn't help whether we have policy buying into that or we've got industry buying into that. There's also this consumer buy-in of what do we want to consume? What do we want to have here? And that's kind of with the seasonality as well. It's something that often comes up of, do you need to have strawberries around the year? And all these sort of things that we've become quite used to our global food system that is very highly interconnected. And we're used to having these global trade flows in our food systems and our food supply chains. And that is being challenged at the moment. I think we've also seen that with non-food items during the pandemic and all the resultant transport issues, realizing how complex our supply chains are and how interconnected they really are because, well, we are substituting things. So even if you're usually eating a different cereal, if the price for that one goes out, you're substituting with something else. So it is affecting the whole cereal market, okay. whether or not a particular area has a shortage at the moment. Uh, Chibuke, I just want to come back to you because we're sort of getting close to the end of our programme. But uh, government and business leaders often get to uh, the COP, the COP uh, conferences every November. I mean, we're heading towards one in this coming November. It'll be in the United Arab Emirates. Food production, food scarcity and food security will be part of that conversation. Um, how important are gatherings like this and do they really solve the issue? Well, the, the gatherings are quite important, and in fact, it will be a, a very good medium uh, to uh, advocate for um, government intervention uh, because, you know, for all these things to be implemented, uh, there has to be that political will by the different governments uh, because the regional crisis and the regional food insecurity are actually what come together to become a global food crisis. Uh, so if governments are ready and willing uh, to invest uh, in, in the agri-food system, uh, then especially in uh, research and science and innovation uh, to develop new technologies or, for instance, to support emerging businesses and small and medium-scale businesses in the countries. Uh, and looking at the much um, newer aspects of the food system, which is the, the emerging alternatives uh, to, to the gold standards, uh, I think that would contribute significantly. In fact, uh, at the, the UN uh, Food System Summit in 2021, there was a recommendation that if governments can uh, invest 1% of the agricultural GDP back in science and innovation related to the food systems, uh, that that could help uh, alleviate some of these issues and help increase uh, the, 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 the emphasis you yeah. know, in the rescuing our, our food systems. And, mm. and the, the, the last comment I made uh, a point about uh, cultural shift, uh, about consumers not being willing uh, to make this shift. But I believe that when the government is involved and when there's an emphasis on these uh, alternatives and when everybody recognizes there's a, a crisis, uh, people are willing to change. You'd be surprised that these okay. uh, alternatives are already consumed in different parts of the world. So it's just a matter of uh, industry uh, being uh, encouraged are required you know, to adopt some of these alternatives. Uh, and then with that, we bring about the diversity uh, needed uh, to sustain the system. Okay, let me just bring in Sarah here, because obviously, you know, while you have all of these politicians jostling for position, and they will uh, come November, I mean, how are countries using sort of food availability, uh, sustainability or uh, security as a, as a strategy for sort of geopolitical power? Because, you know, food is power, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, any scarce good can be power in the end. So you're seeing that used as soft power sometimes. So we're seeing, for example, Ukraine utilizing grain ambassadors to African countries to market their grain and also market relations to Ukraine. So it is definitely a political element in the food supply chains as well. It will be international collaboration that we need, where we need to interact with each other. And that will also be a game of power in the end. It is, we see some countries trying to stockpile things, trying to make sure that they are well off, whether that is with food items or whether that is with fertilizer and similar things. So we've got countries trying to mm. batten down the hatches there. We've seen the export restrictions of various countries. So it is very much a political element there to try and support both the world and other countries, but also your own, own homeland. Uh, Monica, just briefly, I mean, inflation obviously is a subject that's hitting uh, the airwaves uh, across uh, the globe at the moment. You know, Pakistan, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Morocco, all, uh, as well as many more across Europe, all being uh, affected. Uh, how closely are you monitoring this when you're analysing the data you need month by month to tell the world whether prices are going up or down on these commodities? Well, the food price index does not include the considerations of the, the price inflation because it's it's a bulk commodities versus food. But we are monitoring the developments on the of the prices on the retail level very closely across uh, across uh, mostly across all the countries. Well, we shall see uh, what does happen certainly uh, in the coming few weeks. We'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. But thank you very much for a very interesting conversation, and thank you to all of our guests, uh, Monica Tatova, Sarah Schiffling, and Chibu Ike. Udenegwe. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alaishi, Usama Aloni, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Santil Marimatu, and the programme was edited by Anna Savic, Lin Myun, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next episode. Thank you.